Let me invite onto the show today for our conversation on the sustainability of our local healthcare system, Dr. Rajesh Patel. He's the head of benefits and risk at the Board of Healthcare Funders. Dr. Patel, good morning. Good morning to you and the listeners. Also in the studio, Dr. Ntutuko Bengu, CEO and founder of Alchemy Health Technologies. Dr. Bengu, good morning. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, listeners. We're also joined by Christoph Rath, who is joint CEO of Insight Actuaries and Consultants. Christoph? Good morning, Kathy. It's great to be here. It's great to have all of you here. And I think for a really important discussion, because healthcare is something that all of us need. And um, I was saying earlier that the conversation around universal healthcare, I think at least, that it's not about whether or not we need universal healthcare. I think the world agrees on the fact that we need universal healthcare, but it's about how do we get universal healthcare? How do we make healthcare accessible to all people who need it? And unfortunately, you know, the picture that has been created in this country, especially even under the COVID-19 pandemic, is one of a declining state of our healthcare system. Dr. Patel, in your view, you know, if you were just to describe where you think the state of healthcare in South Africa is today, um, what would you say? I think the bottom line is we have a national health system that everyone can access, which is a public sector. The biggest problem I think we've had is from 1994 till now, per capita, we haven't been allocating sufficient mon- money to for healthcare services. So essentially, there's been a dilution in the money allocated, and there's various reasons for that. We can explore it a little later. But I think because there hasn't been sufficient money allocated, particularly in the public sector, you're getting this big divide between the private sector of those people wanting to try and buy their own medical care services and the public sector. And you're getting this divide that's getting wider and wider and wider. And I think that contributes to the big issue that we're facing in this country. If we are to unpack why it is that there hasn't been enough budget allocated towards this, where would you say the problem lies? I think looking at the health system as well from perspective is leadership. Do we have the right leadership? Do we have the right management in place, etc.? And part of the big problem is also the bloated public sector service that we have in the provinces that need to be considered in this regard. But I think leadership is absolutely critical. In the early years with Dr. Nkosana Zuma, Dr. Mantushablam Simang, in many respects we had strong leadership who drove the agenda, who prioritized important reforms that you needed to implement. However, in the last 15, 20 years, you really haven't seen that strong leadership coming through driving agenda of reform, reallocation and distribution, the whole universal healthcare coverage issues. Mm. You've seen like you're taking one problem at a time and trying to work on it and really not finding the overall solutions for the country. Mm. I want to explore that that issue of, of leadership further so that you can break it down for us in terms of what these reforms, what you mean uh, when you talk about reforms. Uh, Dr. Bengu, let me give you a chance to give your own perspective on, on what the state of, of health care is in the country right now. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Kathy. And in, in, <coughs> incidentally, this was the the topic I had to cover at the conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, my response really, I think, after giving the presentation at the end, I, I said, according to my assessment, our state of health is in high care. Obviously, the ICU being the, <laughs> the worst and beyond that, of course, we're talking mortuary now. But uh, this was really based on, uh, I looked at the model that's used in assessing health systems across many countries. And this is a model that looks at leadership in government governance. It looks at uh, the health workforce. It looks at information systems, uh, medical products, which would include your vaccines, uh, medical devices, and also uh, the financing of the health system and how that uh, basically uh, gives us uh, service delivery. So um, it's basically a failing mark, which I gave, 
and uh, and uh, I must say here that this is obviously based on on my view as an informed, not only user but a, a, a policy advisor in the industry, and active in the private sector as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I basically am am convinced. Uh, that and I used indicators that are known in the industry, either mainly because of of what is published in the annual reports of various entities, the Health Market Inquiry, of which I was fortunate to be a, a panelist over more than five years, and a lot of debates in the industry. But certainly, on the leadership side, I did say that I think uh, both in the private and public sector, on paper, we've got uh, people who are quite qualified, but whether that translates into governance that's appropriate, I think that's where I I had a, a, an issue and overall I said, well, that's a failing mark there. Uh, because you have to look at uh, the level of corruption and I um, was very careful to say that it's both in public and private sector. Mm. and And that is very much linked to the issues that we see uh, in poor service delivery. I, on the financing side, I did say, of course, of, we're not where we should be. Uh, if I were to have a slight difference with um, Dr. Patel, uh, I'm, I'm less likely to say we underfunded, but I would say we're not using the funds we have uh, uh, correctly, mm. in a cost-effective manner, and and my reason is, uh, we've always allocated 8.5 percent of our budget towards healthcare, but uh, that's still higher than what the WHO recommends. But our outcomes are certainly uh, not the best, given what we spend. Uh, so we we have to 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 make good use of what we have available in terms of healthcare, and. Um, uh, then, uh, of course, the issue of workforce is a real one. Mm. Uh, it is true that uh, we don't train as many of healthcare service providers as the country needs, but that's not really unusual. There's a shortage almost everywhere. That's why there's so much migration. And that forces government in certain ways. On one side is, is basically allowing uh, medical professionals who are in public service to work in private sector as well. Uh, I don't think that's well managed uh, to the extent that you do find uh, uh, public uh, sector employees who are in private sector very early in the day. Sure, sure. And uh, uh, there is also on a similar basis, uh, the shortage of nursing staff means that we have nursing staff who work in public service in one day and the next at night they are in the private sector. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of issues. The posts of intents that go unfilled, you tell us about that all the time. So on the workforce, there is a a problem that that we need to deal with. And and I think in many ways, we've seen the challenges of the workforce and the pressures yeah. that they are under yes. um, in, in, in the protests that we have seen and healthcare workers really being incredibly vocal about you know some of the challenges that they are yeah. having to deal with on, on a day-to-day basis. I'm going to pause you there, Dr. Bengu, and, and go to Christoph and, sure. and, and also give him a chance to weigh in on this conversation. I think, Christoph, especially, you know, this issue of leadership, because it's coming out in both what Dr. Rajesh and, and Dr. Bengu have said. What is the problem? Because if, if, if the people are qualified, if they've got the degrees, they're supposed to have the know-how. So, so what's the issue with, the leadership, with leadership in, in our healthcare sector? Yeah, Cathy, <clears throat> I think that's an excellent question. I think you know, my background is from a financing perspective. I spent most of my career in, uh, in the domain of medical schemes and kind of thinking about where the money comes from and, and where it goes, both in the private and the, and the public sector. Now, I, I, to some degree, my diagnosis would be that around uh, 2007, actually, at the, at the Polokwane elective conference, national health insurance emerged as this overarching, enormous, enormous reform that South Africa must uh, embark upon. 
And perhaps inadvertently that has had some consequences in our ability to to have effective leadership make decisions and, and make policy changes as it's necessary. And, and, and I'll try to explain why. I think all of us agree. I think the first words you said this morning, Kathy, was something around universal health care mm-hmm. and a very interesting statistics that came up from, from the BHF conference last week was when Chai presented on some of the public hearings on the National Health Insurance Bill and suggested that something like 80% of respondents are in favor of universal health care, which should hardly be surprising. I think that's what all of us want. But only 20% of respondents were in favor of national health insurance as being the correct mechanism to achieve universal health care, because there are many ways that it could be achieved. Um, The the, the way that our government has, has chosen is one of centralized public sector control. It's almost like creating another quote-unquote SOE that will take charge of all of the healthcare financing in the country. Now, the reason that we've seen you know, very, few, very little positive development since then is I think it's like a tale of two cities. We have these two very different creatures, the public and the private sector, mm. both of them impacted on by this policy direction that we've decided to go on. In the public sector, I think Dr. Bengu sp- spoke exhaustively on service delivery, on poor management, on corruption. There are pockets of excellence in the pub- pockets of excellence in the public sector. I must emphasize this. But but if you go to a public clinic and you look at all of the people queuing to receive primary health care, often not making it to the front of the queue, even if they've been waiting since three o'clock in the morning, you have to contend with the fact that it, that it's failing in terms of the quality of care. And in the private sector, there are so many low-hanging fruits, simple pieces of reform, Kathy, that I believe we could implement tomorrow mm. that would enable uh, medical schemes, insurers, administrators to extend low-cost cover to people who can't afford cover. I was listening to your Sebania feature earlier this morning and thinking about the plight of households who who, who cannot afford. Uh, Sebania, of course, um, does provide comprehensive health care to all of its employees, but just thinking about a lower income segment of our population, it's very easy to implement a bunch of reforms that will allow us to extend cover to lower income South Africans in the private sector and alleviate the burden on the public sector. But I think my diagnosis is that because there's this enormous reform looming on the horizon, our leadership has been reticent and reluctant to make you know, incremental fixes to the system. It's almost as if we've let the medical scheme and the policy environment to stall, I would say, for about 15 years now. Um, and because we have this big bang reform um, kind of mindset, we haven't taken very small, obvious and simple incremental steps mm. that could have been taken. You know, and you know, in the time we have, we might be able to touch on some of those obvious reforms that, that could be made. We're talking about the sustainability of our local healthcare system and really just beginning with a diagnosis of where things are and what are the biggest challenges that face our healthcare system in the country. Uh, Dr. Rajesh Patel, Christoph Rath and Dr. Tutuko Bengu are my guests for this morning. I'll be taking your calls within the next half hour of our conversation. For now, it's 10.30. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 104.6 FM in Twane. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. We continue the conversation on the talking point and we're discussing the state of healthcare, particularly in South Africa, and leadership being raised as a big issue. Dr. Patel, I expected that the NHI would probably become central to our conversation because it seems to be the cloud that has been hanging over our healthcare industry. It's spoken about very confidently and you know very committed tones uh, coming out of government but the reality is that there's been so much confusion in that space what do you think the impact of that has been on how we are actually administering health care in the country you what a tough question <laughs> yeah no i think 
we accept, as you mentioned, that universal health care coverage is important for all of us. It's our country and the regional countries are signatories to, 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 to the sustainable development goals that WHO has come up with. And the NHI component is one component, one tool that will help sort of improve the inequity in the money allocation. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. NHI is a simple financing tool that takes money, pull it together, and applies it on the basis of health needs. Not very different to what we do right now. Right now, we allocate a budget, whether you, it's needed for health conditions or not, or whatever the, the scenario is underlying that province or that area. So it's a much more progressive reform in how we allocate money. The problem is that we've politicized it to such an extent as if it's a silver bullet to all our health problems, and we focused on it so much that, as was mentioned earlier, some of the minor reforms we haven't bothered to then implement, and we're waiting for this thing to take place. The biggest problem is the disappointment that we've taken almost 10 years to come up with this NHI bill, which was tabled to Parliament, and really the content of it leaves a lot to be desired. There's a whole lot of issues that have come out in that bill. I'm actually scared that if that goes through Parliament, we're going to have a difficult NHI to deal with, mm. a difficult a problem area. There's governance issues. There's constitutionality issues. There's a whole lot of structural elements of service provision they intend to implement, which is even scary. In 2003, the National Health was amended to implement district health authorities, That hasn't been fully implemented in 20 years, but now we want to implement hundreds of so-called contracting unit of public contract primary care and health district health management offices to be included with those things. And I'm just scared. We haven't been able to do 50 or so district health authorities. Now we want to talk about hundreds of these things. Mm. We're talking about a single single purchase, Mm. a single payer. But in reality, the COPC, as they described it, it's got to become a mini funder of itself because they will have to contract with a whole lot of providers below them. And it's just creating a whole lot of nightmare. The constitutional elements, yes, there's a lot of people who have highlighted it. And I'm not sure that Parliament or anyone else is taking those concerns very seriously. Mm-hmm. The governance issues are there to be seen. Department of Health think, don't think there's governance issues. And that makes people like myself scared of what we're going to get at the end of it. Okay, so so I'm I'm going to try and and not go down the rabbit hole of what's before Parliament because that is it's a whole conversation in and of itself. Of there's itself, so much yeah. there's so much that that Very we true. can that we can unpack there. But these minor reforms that you believe could have been implemented um, over the last. 10, 15 years or so. What are some of those changes? Then let's talk about practical things that many South Africans will be able to relate with and, and understand because ultimately we talk about healthcare policies, but in the end, the experience of us as ordinary people is really, it, it's the difference between whether or not I get access to medication on the day that I need it, whether or not I get healthcare um, when I'm most vulnerable and when I need it. So there's, if you, there's a couple of commissions and inquiries that have taken place. The best mm-hmm. example is the health market inquiry. And then there was the National Lancet National Commission that came out with a lot of recommendations. And if you just take some simple thing, and we raised it earlier with regards to leadership and people in regulators that are there not necessarily doing what they are appointed to do and going just limited and being politicized in many respects. Take Health Professions Council, for example. The world has moved towards integrated provision of health care. Mm. They have not accepted that. To them, they still adopt this British system of each service provider on his own to be able to deliver. You can't deliver coordinated, integrated care in that way. So definitely something as simple as teams-based approach to healthcare needed to have been adopted, needed to have been embraced, needed to have been implemented. The ethical rules simply would have needed to be changed. They have done some work since the health market inquiry, but I believe some of them are complete, but none of them have been published. So to me, a simple thing like if you completed one, why not publish it? Let the then industry then go ahead implementing that new reform that's out there. That's one example. If you look at the medical scheme environment, 
the prescribed minimum benefit has really been going expensive. Mm. It's not aligned to government policy for starters, and they've had umpteen opportunities to re- to review it, etc. They haven't done it. They've currently in the process. I think it's been going on for about three years, and we've not even seen light of day on that that component. The low cost benefit option that Christoph is talking about. It's easy to implement that. My colleague and I, in two days, we came up with the framework and we communicated that to the industry. The Council for Medical Schemes is sitting with it seven years and we're not seeing anything out there in the market yet. Mm. You know, And they continuously exempt insurance. We don't want to take away those who are having that benefit, but allow others to implement something along those lines. As Christoph has said, there are millions of people who would want to be on such products. It would alleviate burden on the state. Nothing being done. Then simple things that within their own scheme environment, we can implement things unilaterally, a single benefit plan. Whether it comes through leadership who requests that medical schemes do it or revision of the regulations in that regard, we can still implement a lot of those. And I think Dr. Mm-hmm. Bengu, who was a panelist of the Health Market mm-hmm. Inquiry, is with us. Perhaps we can ask him to elaborate a more, lot more on some of those recommendations yeah. that came through. And, and you know, Dr. Bengu, one of the things that I loved about the Market Inquiry report, by the way, is the fact that it helped to deal with the myth of just, the, you know, the... And it's not really about excellence, but this idea that South Africans have that private health care is perfect, that there's nothing wrong that is taking place in that sector and that the the prices that we're, we're actually paying just to be able to access private health care are justified because that market inquiry said, look, the direction we're going on is unsustainable and quite frankly is not always justified. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. Uh, that is certainly one of the major uh, take-home messages from the inquiry, and uh, I just want to to link that to the question you you asked before. Mm-hmm. What are the easy or accessible issues that could be dealt with, and and the one that uh, people who aren't active in the industry may not be aware of is that it's actually. The, the simple pricing of healthcare services. Since 2004, the the way the industry sets its tariffs or prices was abolished for competition reasons. But uh, this must be the only industry, Kathy, uh, where if you go and consult, you you really don't know how much you're going to pay. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable that it's still happening. A, a solution has been put forward to authorities, but it, it remains uh, unresolved. And, and one of the uh, outcomes of the proposals would see the country having what we call a reference price list that basically says if you are going to have uh, whatever procedure, this is the range your practitioner they should charge, mm-hmm. you know. Then they can go, there are provisions why they could charge higher or lower, but the main thing is the patient must be informed, uh, must give consent. So those are just some of the issues, and, and that is has been traced to how it also drives expenditure, making healthcare more expensive. But again, even practitioners themselves, they have come out asking for this to be implemented because it is just so obvious and it would help the public. So it's one of, of, of the changes that are there that are, again, I feel fall into the low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. category. Now, irrespective of what we are planning for the uh, NHI down the road, the reality is we are incurring costs of healthcare today and there is very little protection for the public from a pricing perspective. It, I think it is instructive that even themselves practitioners have come out, made submissions that we need direction here. So it certainly is a main. Some of them, of course, have to do with um, the fact that uh, hospital groups and practitioners uh, really are not, more the help uh, hospital groups are really not regulated beyond give, being given license to set up shop and start seeing patients. 
you do have a strong regulator in the CMS for the medical schemes. You do have the Health Professions Council for the practitioners, even though we do say as well where we believe they could improve. Uh, Dr. Patel has already touched on it, so I won't go there. So, yeah, the, the issue is the incremental steps mm. that would help the industry right now. And again, the point you made mm. that nobody is saying uh, private sector is perfect, and that's exactly the reason private sector is crying out for, for, for regulation to curb its excesses because uh, at the end of the day, everybody recognizes that this is not sustainable. Dr. Bengu, as you're talking about this issue of just basic pricing, it, it brings up in my mind um, the idea of price fixing because depending on where you go to, and what kind of doctor you want to see. In some instances, you will have doctors that are, are charging 2,000 rand just for you to be able to see them. And they specifically say that this is not covered by your medical aid or by any medical aid for that matter. And it's a practice that we are seeing more and more. Maybe not all of them are in the price range of 2,000 rand, but certainly, you know, for, per consultation, straight out, you know, you have to part with 700 rand before they even get to tell you whether it's a cough, it's the flu, it's mm. COVID-19. And, and, and I wonder, you know, do we have elements of price fixing in, in the industry? Do doctors and practitioners, do they sit down and have conversations around how much we're going to charge in this area for a basic consultation? Yeah, in the current uh, environment, well, officially, well, obviously one can't know what's happening mm. in, the, in, in the private spaces, but there certainly is no... Uh, agreed and approved and you must uh, I think for, for this to make sense one has to go back to how it used to happen. As a consumer of healthcare you really aren't in a position to judge uh, the complexity uh, of what care you need. So what has happened in the past is that medical schemes would basically act as an agent in the form of negotiating with the practitioners, with the hospitals, because they are better placed in, 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 in determining what's fair, then they would obviously get around, argue and agree on tariffs, uh, but then that was deemed to be uh, in violation of competition rules. But this is what the inquiry has, has come up with, a way of still getting around the table, but in a manner that is acceptable. Now, this is what you need to do, because that's exactly the point. That one could say, well, the fact that one doctor charges 2,000 and another charges 700 for mm -hmm. the same, one could argue that that's, that example alone is proof that there's no price fixing, because they are all over the place. Mm. But the reality is that uh, healthcare is a special good. There is information asymmetry, meaning you can never know more than the person who is providing the service. But also they have a, a financial benefit in what they prescribe. So that is why the regulation of how prices are determined is important, uh, mainly to protect the, the, the patient. Because now it's unlikely that outliers like that would be accepted but you would know what is a reasonable range mm. and then you can negotiate with your practitioner in that basis so on the face of it you would say it's arranged in the sense that all practitioners get around the table but it would be under controlled environment where <clears throat> there is far more understanding of what it costs to to bring that service to the patient. So the outcome certainly is pro-patient. All right. Now, Mike and Newlands, I'm going to take you shortly, and of course I'll also be taking more calls on 011-714-2006. Before I do that, uh, Christoph, let me give you a chance to jump in here and reflect just on part of what has come out of this conversation so far. Sure. <clears throat> I think I want, to, I want to add to what Dr. Bengo just mentioned in terms of, of pricing. So, you know, it's difficult to buy a car, it's difficult to buy a cell phone, but I think it's even infinitely more difficult than that to purchase healthcare. You know, if you need a hip replacement, what is the doctor going to charge? What is the quality of the procedure going to be? We we know from our data that 
the quality of, of procedures can vary significantly from one hospital to the next and from one doctor to the next. Consumers don't have this kind of information. Mm. I mean, if you want to buy a car, you can take the car magazine at least and look at the efficiency or the boot capacity or get a sense of the quality. But I think one of the roles of medical schemes is supposed to be to contract on your behalf and to negotiate on your behalf. And one of the roles that the NHI is contemplating similarly is to contract on your behalf and negotiate. So we always uh, a useful caricature to have in your mind is if you go for a surgical procedure, if any of your listeners ever went for one, quite often you 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 lie in the hospital bed wearing a very awkward hospital gown with parts of your body exposed and being wheeled into the theater when you meet your anesthetist for the first time. There's no opportunity there to have a, a discussion with your anaesthetist about what this is going to, to cost, right? And that's mm-hmm. through no fault of the anaesthetist. Mm-hmm. But what should be happening, and in some pockets it is happening, um, but what should be happening is that your, your medical scheme or your funder should have already made a deal on your behalf because they do have the expertise to understand the quality and the cost. So I think you know that, that touches on an earlier point as well as to just the number of South Africans today who do not belong to medical schemes but choose to make use of the private health care mm-hmm. system. So we have some statistics on this. And at least 9 million, probably closer to 10 to 15 million South Africans we know today do not belong to medical schemes but choose out of their own volition to go to the private sector and then pay out of pocket. And a, a GP consultation this year costs something like 400 rand, let's say, if there's a little bit of medication involved, more than that. And the people who are paying out of pocket for these um, are the ones who can least afford unplanned expenditure. Those are people who cannot afford the very expansive PMBs of medical schemes and so are left destitute and, and choosing not to go to the public clinics. And again, uh, they cannot get that, that protection of someone negotiating on their behalf. And also, this, as I think uh, Dr. Patel has pointed out, there's some very simple reforms that could be implemented tomorrow that would allow the private sector funders to take care of this population without having to, to, to cover them with the full cost of PMBs. Um, but we just haven't seen those steps being taken, even mm-hmm. though we've, we've been flirting with that since, since 2005, frankly. Um, and it's, it's not rocket science, but unfortunately, perhaps because of this looming big reform mentality, we haven't seen those steps um, being implemented. We're going to take a quick break and then I'm back with your calls and your contributions to this conversation. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana, weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. All right, so some really important insights being shared by our guests today on healthcare in this country. And the conversation is really leading us to sustainability. How do we make healthcare sustainable and, most importantly, accessible to everybody in this country who needs it? Let me take Mike in Newlands. Mike, good morning. Hello, good morning, Kathy. Good morning to your family. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Can hear you loud and clear, Mike. Fantastic. First of all, um, yes, but we do have a national healthcare system. Unfortunately, it is collapsed. It's not difficult. Back in the day, if you remember, we had Dr. Ho- uh, Chris Barnard. We, we were recognised, like so many things, back in the back um, in the bad apartheid days, as a country that could achieve things. Unfortunately, we've taken every single thing, be it Benel, be it health, whatever it is. The ANC has taken it and destroyed it through their corrupted and their ideology. I mean, but the first thing is, though, and there's two things to deal with here. First of all, I get so scared when I hear these debates talking about the private sector. Now, we are in a crisis here, and I would say to Dr. Bengals, Doctor, don't worry about the private health care. If it costs a fortune, I promise you I don't mind. I pay a lot of money to belong to one, and I'm very happy. Do not worry about me or anybody that's paying private health care. They will sort it out. Private enterprise will take place. The system will take place. My medical aid will get the best deal for me, and I'm quite comfortable. Concentrate, rather, on the young children that are dying in the hospitals. And probably by the end of the show, a young child would have died in a hospital somewhere, and we're practicing on about private health care. You know, Ronald Reagan once said, if you want to, the biggest, scariest thing ever said was when, when the government official walks in and says, hello, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. So do not help the health care. They are absolutely fine. Uh, on the private side, on the on the government side, mm. look, um, we, we but but Mike, 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 the big issue here.
the big issue here, and it's really one of the, the, the main points around the NHI, is that, yes, the private healthcare system seems to be functional, but let's also look at how much government is spending on subsidizing private health care in this country. So while you might be comfortable and be okay paying for private health care, the reality is that without the government subsidy, you probably wouldn't be able to afford it. Kathy, we can't afford this, uh, this discussion on this particular issue. Yes, of course, they spend a fortune, but you know, and I know, our Minister of Health has currently been suspended for corruption. The, what was it? The DG of Health got involved in a billion rand whatever it was, uh, you know, scam on health masks. We've got the, the president's office. Is the president's assistant involved in corruption? I don't want to tie this program up listening everybody in the ANC is corrupt. But unfortunately, we have a government that's massively corrupt. The money is there, absolutely is there. And if it was privatized or away, taken away from the government, it would be fine. But we've got Dr. Tim DeMayer, who's actually in the papers saying he deals with dying children every day, not just about the money, by the way, collapsing municipalities, AMC corruption, no water in the drain, sewage doesn't work, supplies don't arrive on time. That is all the factor of the government, which sadly is voted in by the majority of the people today. I can't change that. Unfortunately, I wish I could, but I can't. But the thing is, you've got a doctor venue there, I believe, I think it might be from the government side. He's not, he's not worried about No, Mike, you see, the problem that. is that you're so I, presumptuous. You are so presumptuous. Dr. Bengu is not from government. Okay. Dr. Well, Bengu, in I fact, represents an, an independent company, Alchemy Health Technologies. He's contributed to the conversation around public Kathy, health care in the country. You I must withdraw. listen, Mike, and you must no, stop being presumptuous. But I want to make the point that we've got Mabuza and Zuma go to Russia. We've got ANC MPs all moan about the, the government system, but they're all on private health care. When you hear an ANC MP is in Mill Park Hospital, what I'm trying to say is this. Let's forget about private health care, gentlemen, wherever department or who you work for, forget about it. We have got a crisis in our country. We need to focus our attention on dealing with the government health care and saving people's lives. But we had these very interesting conversations. I can't argue about that, but they have been going on for years. Kathy, I'll take this conversation. I'll play it in a year's time, and I promise you it will be the same questions and the same discussion because we're not dealing with the basics here. And the basics are this. We have a massively corrupt government. We have a government that is voted in, unfortunately, by the masses, and we're dealing with an ideology, and we've got to get past that. And these doctors have got to speak out against the fact our Minister of Health was suspended for corruption. All right, Mike, 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 just hang on. Christoph wants to wants to intervene here, but I'm but I also must say that 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 I'm not even sure that you've been listening um, to this conversation properly, Christoph. You 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 want to respond to Mike? I'm happy to to respond. I think the first thing, Kathy. Uh, is that, uh, you know, I think the tone of, of Mike's voice is emblematic of the frustration that many South Africans of all walks of life are experiencing. And I think we must acknowledge that. It's, it's a tone of frustration, of a lack of progress, of looking at the wrong thing. I think Mike's perspective, you know, doesn't speak for all South Africans. Let me, let me, let me first resonate with Mike and then maybe give a different perspective. I recall a cartoon picture which will show you how, how old these debates are. I think this was still during the tenure of uh, Dr. Mantu Chabadada Msimang when she was the Minister of Health. And the cartoon picture in one of the newspapers had two vehicles. Uh, the one was a real skadonk, a real skoro koro, broken down vehicle. And next to it, a fancy new Mercedes Benz. Benz and, and, and then uh, it depicted the Minister of Health as a, as a mechanic. And she was under the Mercedes trying to fix the car that, that works very well and mm -hmm. leaving the broken car. And, you know, that would, I guess... I think resonate with what Mike has mentioned. Um, to to give some balance to the discussion, I think you know there are issues, massive issues of corruption in the public sector, which Mike has articulated quite clearly. There there are issues of profiteering in the private sector. There is pricing issues, and you know whereas Mike um, is is probably comfortable that he can afford all of that, um, very few South Africans are. And maybe one statistics, one statistic that we need to 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 pause on is that if we look at the, the general household survey of 2020, then half of our country, Kathy, 50% of the population in South Africa live in a household where the breadwinner of that household earns 5,000 rands a month or less. Mm. I mean, it, it's too ghastly to contemplate. So while I agree that many of us 
um, would prefer to continue to pay the private sector for the level of service that we get, uh, we must ask ourselves how we can extend that kind of cover and give more people the opportunity to access quality health care in, in, in either sector. And I think those are some of the simple low-hanging fruit and reforms that, that all three of us have been talking about um, that's simple to implement, but we, that we haven't seen um, coming through over the past 15 years. Kathy. All right. Uh, I'm going to take Dr. Pillay. What we'll do is that we'll extend our conversation uh, beyond the 10, 15 news headlines because I've still got so many callers. And maybe we'll look to wrap it around, I, I don't know, 20 past 10, depending also on the availability past of 11. our guests. Oh, 20 past 11, yes, that is. Um, let me quickly take Dr. Pillay in Gabeja. Good morning to you. Good morning, Good morning to your panel there. Firstly, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I want to say this has been the most lucid discussion that I've been having since the hearing. First thing I wanted to just we always uh, confuse things. One, Do, Dr. Pillay, um, we, we, yeah. we, we just have a bit of an issue with your line. I can't hear you clearly. Um, so what I'll do, I'll ask our producers just to redial you, perhaps try and get you back on a different line. We'll continue the conversation with you after the 10 o'clock news. Anonymous and Gauteng, I also see you, and we'll try and squeeze in some more of the callers that we have uh, dialing in on this conversation. It's 11 o'clock. Dineo Mutawung is standing by with your latest news update. It's six after 11 o'clock. Welcome to the third and final hour of the show. The last hour really just um, flying by and we've extended the conversation we've been having around the sustainability of local health care. Very different and interesting insights being shared by our guest, Dr. Rajesh Patel. He is... Um, with the Board of Healthcare Funders, Christoph Rath is a CEO of Inside Actuaries and Consultants, and Dr. Ntutuko Bengu is CEO and founder Alchemy Health Technology. So I'm still taking more of your calls and your contributions, and I think you know there've been big issues that have been highlighted around leadership and governance, which is where the biggest failures seem to be in the healthcare sector across the board, not just in the public healthcare sector but in the private healthcare sector as well that are resulting in some of these gaps perhaps that we as the end consumers experience uh, when it comes to you know the, the access and even the quality of healthcare that we're able to experience. And, and for me, it's also been interesting to hear about the reforms. Um, they call them low-hanging fruit even. What are some of the changes that can be implemented today, tomorrow, that will make healthcare in this country a lot more accessible. And, and pricing, I know, is is a big one. Uh, Dr. Pele in Kabeja, good morning to you again. Kabeja, good morning to you again. So now. Hello, Dr. Pele. Good morning. I hope you can hear me better now. Yes, yes, I can certainly hear you better. Go for it. Okay. First thing first, I wanted to say thank you for the lucid debate because, you know, you've had debates before, but, you know, the issues do not come back, and I think your panel, people there, they're experienced in this, and they're giving a very lucid debate. The point that I just wanted to raise was that, one, we have a huge discrepancy in South Africa where 80% of the population or more is catered for a public health sector, and the private sector only caters for 20%. And if you have to fix the system in South Africa, you would have to look at those that provide health care for the majority of the people. The second point that you have raised, as you said quite correctly, in any democratic and social government, the government actually subsidizes the poor uh, uh, at the expense of the rich. But in South Africa, we have a unique situation where the private health care is subsidized higher than what the Poor indigent public health care is subsidized. That. And the tax expenditure subsidy has been there since the ages, and it is that reform that we were trying to achieve. The third thing that I wanted to highlight is that NFI is not a replacement for the health sector per se. The government still has a responsibility to provide health care for 80% of the population. But the introduction of the NHI was to, as a process. And it's not an event, it's a process that will take 15 or 20 years. And that's why you need continuity of implementation of an idea. And if you have a fragmented implementation, it doesn't work. 
The NHI was not a silver bullet to replace the healthcare system. The NHI was an intervention in the healthcare system to address the issue of the tax subsidy and the unequal uh, funding of the rich at the expense of the poor. The issue about this is that health services follow the money. And if you have more funds in the private sector, then all the providers and all the provision of healthcare moves to that sector. And NHI was a process to say, how do we equitably distribute the resources, both financial and human resources, so that it serves all of the population and not less than 20% of the population. Now, the problem that we have had is that we didn't have effective leadership that understood the process, understood the policy, and implemented in a sequential manner. It is very important that we implement in a sequential manner. If you implement in a haphazard manner, your unintended consequences become high, and you do not achieve the objective that you need to do. Now, the Taylor Commission of Inquiry is a very clear and trusted process. The Green Book of the NHI, the Green Book of Health and ANCL policy gave the direction. The Taylor Commission gave the processes that needed to be involved in implementation. But in our implementation till now, it has been patchy. Different ministers have implement different things. And you don't have a sequential implementation of a plan. And everybody thinks there's a silver bullet that is going to solve the problem, not recognizing that it's a process that has to take more than 20 years and that you have to implement in a sequential, progressive manner to achieve an objective. Now, most of the things that we talked about is a lack of understanding, a comprehensive understanding about what needs to be done and what the role of different sectors is. For example, people say there is price fixing, as I said. But in the competition, there is provision for an application for exemption for the health sector for actually getting a reference price list, but they do not do it. Uh, the same thing, many other things are not done. Rakesh, uh, there are many issues that have come up that have not been done. Uh, and if we do not know what is to be done and we don't implement that sequentially and we just get a patchy implementation, just to satisfy people here, we're not going to get a comprehensive plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, involves the pooling of resources, the provision of resources, getting the throughput and getting the necessary health professionals and the health sectors ready for providing health care, having the necessary labs, having the necessary training facilities. And it's a comprehensive plan, and I'm not so sure that we have people at the present moment who comprehensively understand what needs to be done and that there are different components of this that need to be implemented. And it has to be implemented in a sequential manner. I was involved in this process for a long time, but unfortunately now I gave up because I just feel that people do not understand the process. All right. Thank you. Dr. Pillay, let me thank you so much for calling in and uh, for your really, really uh, invaluable input to this conversation and and how you've put it there, the fact that it is a 20-year process and it's really saying this is not something that is fixed once a bill is passed, that they are years, it's, it's a process that's years in the making. And the point that has been raised on the show is that we haven't been doing the work to lay the kind of foundation that will make an implementation of the NHI successful, at least not where we are right now. Anonymous in Gauteng, good morning to you. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Anonymous. Go for it. Okay, so my my contribution is, look, healthcare is quite broad and big, but here we are sitting with... um, um, uh, multiple uh, smaller industries within healthcare. And um, as it stands, it would so be that um, in our current setup, we procure quite a lot of um, material in order to render services, right? So the, the doctors at the hospitals and the, the nursing staff or whoever who are clinicians buy quite need to, to get quite a lot of things to be bought for them, syringes, and you name it. And that industry, that's a 21 billion rand industry, right? Um, only in South Africa. So that's what we pay for that. 
But what we found over time, because we just done a research lab with the South African Medical Research Council, and what we found was 98% of that 21 billion rent spent is actually in imports. Now, maybe one of the ways to reduce the cost of healthcare is to try to localize this. But there's challenges even with that, because these things are healthcare equipment, they need FDA and CE approvals and so on, and CE marking, but we don't have capacity locally to have these CE marks and FDA approvals because it's such an expensive process. As a result, we end up shipping all this money abroad. Now, the DGI says, no, guys, you must go in there and you must localize this and you must try to do it the best way we can. But what also tends to be an issue, the price at which both the private healthcare and government is buying these equipment, whether it's orthopedic equipment, whether it's uh, um, hospital equipment, be it your boil machines and so on, that equipment, the pricing that is charged, I can tell you comfortably that those guys are not charging for every dollar that they spend, you are charging anywhere around what $40, right? Now, that's unheard of because the profit margins are so huge. The average profit margin for any multinational in the country for a single implant or equipment that they sell is somewhere in the ranges of $20 with a profit margin of around $12 for every dollar we spend. Now, that's where we can really make a huge difference if we were to say, okay, the input cost of all these things that we need to buy needs to come down. We've done it with our HIV drugs, and it has really made um, a great change for our people by allowing more people to have access without necessarily us increasing the budget. So I think that's one of the areas that we need to focus on in lowering this. And unfortunately, medical aid, uh, even though they are saying they are lowering it, they are not necessarily, because what we are seeing is they are bringing it to somewhere around $16, $17 for every dollar that is spent. That is still quite high, and that's what creates the barrier to healthcare in Mm, anonymous, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm losing you a little bit. Are you still on the line, Anonymous? Yes, uh, um, I am on the line. And, and and you work in the sector, hey, Anonymous? Yeah, I've worked in the sector in multiple capacities. I've been on the hospital level and clinical level, so I know how the hospital runs and so on. But I also went and worked for these multinationals to try and help them to get it right. And I know what is the cost on the other side. So I have quite of a 360 view of what the industry needs, where we should go, what what is the best way of going there. All right, Anonymous, thank you so much for calling in and, and again for your contribution. Uh, very insightful indeed. Thanks for that, uh, Anonymous in Gauteng. Lorraine in KZN, good morning. Good morning to you, my sweet Kathy, and how are you? I'm well, Lorraine. Go for and it. That's not, that's not bribery, okay? <laughs> of course it's bribery. Uh, thanks for taking my call, and good morning to your listeners. Kathy, I had the privilege of being in the U.S. at a time when the NHS and the healthcare facilities, whatever it is connected to healthcare, was being really, really discussed and debated for the six months I was there. And I thought it was so wonderful. And whilst I'm not saying that we as South Africans should emulate what America does, we can take a leaf out of their book because the shift uh, needs so much change. Um, But the most important thing is the well-being of South African citizens is crucial and tantamount to what the objective sets out to do. I remember a time when I heard Mr. Velin Kize, the previous health minister, being questioned about the NHS. And um, with due respect to him, um, he always seemed indifferent about disclosing the amount that particularly the DA wanted to know about how much the cost would be, which is crucial. Um, but that aside, I still think the priority should be getting health care the best possible for all sectors of the public, not just those who can afford medical aid. 
And I suggest to every South African, you know, if you haven't been to a public health facility, make a point of going to visit one, and then you'll see how crucial it is for that to change, for the betterment of the whole of our society. Because, you know, Kathy, the saddest thing is some people can't even get to the clinic to buy a headache tablet, let alone get to a hospital and back home without having to repeat that. So if you've heard the word dire being used in terms of what health care in South Africa means for those without medical aid, and even those with medical aid, for that matter, who complain about the exorbitant prices, I think you should actually make a trip down there and go and see for yourself. But for me, what's most crucial is we need to, and that's not just government and the different political parties, we need to include society when it comes to the debate about healthcare once it's been decided that yes, we're going forward to implement. Otherwise, it defeats the purpose if the people are not involved in what affects them. Thank you. Bye. Mm. Thank you, Lorraine. And I agree with you 100%. You know, how do we ensure that this conversation becomes part of our public discourse, at least in a more in-depth manner? Because we talk about it in broad strokes, but there's so much that is involved. And, and I think sometimes it's easier to run away from things that we don't understand, right? We're not in, not all of us in the industry. These are complex subjects, but let's find a way of actually making uh, these conversations accessible because it affects all of us. We're all affected. And let me end it off with Spusiso in Eshoe. Good morning, Spusiso. Yes, good morning, uh, Ms. Msafane. Yes, good morning. Go for it. Yes, uh, I would like to differ a little bit from the topic, but uh, it is in connection with health. Uh, my problem is with uh, the hospital group, which is called Netcare SA. Uh, I was hospitalized in 2019 uh, in, 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 in Netcare Space. And uh, I had to be amputated my little finger. And the surgeon who was uh, doing the operation on me had a mental problem. I, I, I could be able to see that because the gentleman abandoned me and referred me to a, a wound case sister. So then my little finger became so septic because uh, the doctor abandoned me. And then I was referred to an orthopedic surgeon by the, by the name of uh, Dr. Van Weyck. And he had to, to undo the process that was not done by, the, by Dr. Naidu. And this doctor, in four weeks, he committed suicide. And I, as a patient, I could be able to notice that the doctor had a mental problem. In such a way that I reported this to the uh, hospital PRO and also reported this to the hospital CEO. But they could not take any action uh, uh, with my complaint. And now I'm left with a, a paralyzed hand due to that process. Sure. I hope so I'm, I'm listening, you know, I, I'm listening to what you're telling us. And, yes. and, and the difficulty, of course, is because your surgeon is no longer alive. Um, yes. Accountability, what, what, what does that look like in a situation like this? My problem is Netcare South Africa, uh, knowing very well that the gentleman had a mental problem. Because I, I'm a teacher by, by profession, I, had, I have only child psychology, but I could be able to detect that the gentleman had a problem because he shouted at me in front of the nurses and in front of the other fellow patients. And I could be able to detect that the gentleman had a mental illness. And I made a follow-up that the gentleman was having a, a domestic problem. I don't know whether he was undergoing a, what, what do you call it, a divorce or what. But he had a mental problem. 
All right. Look, and now uh, I'm uh, left. I'm left with the paralysis because of the gentleman mm. who was employed by Netcare SA. All right. Look, Spusi, so the difficulty, of course, is that we don't have Netcare as part of this conversation, so they can't respond. Um, but what we can do is that we can, you know, certainly reach out to them. And I'll, I'll take you back to our producers, uh, particularly Lebo, who will take down your details and, and we'll see. But I think it's an example of just the experiences that people have uh, when they try and get assistance in our various doctors, I mean, in our various clinics, hospitals, whether it's private or public health care. Let me come back to my guests and also give them then an opportunity to weigh in on the issues raised by our callers and also include in that, please, your concluding remarks to this conversation because uh, we've extended, but we're also out of time. Uh, Dr. Patel, let me begin with you. Thank you very much. I think we've been sitting with these problems for many, many years. And as was mentioned in this talk, we can make small incremental reforms, and that can make a difference to people's lives. It can also make a difference to people's affordability in healthcare. The, 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 the trade and industry minister has allowed exemption to take place for COVID-related price negotiation. We just need our regulators to take it up and run with it. And I think that's a concluding remark that we need leadership and we need leadership very quickly. Thanks. Dr. Bengal? Yeah, uh, I think I, in, in Spusso's call, I just want to, to, to mention something that most people aren't aware of. Uh, in a private hospital setting, uh, doctors aren't employed by the hospital groups where they work. They run their own separate businesses. Obviously, the common interest is the patient. But uh, the issue of taking the matter up with the hospital where he was admitted, I think that's the right one to look at. And of course, what complicates it, of course, is that the, the doctor is no more now and the HPCSA obviously does get involved on on matters like that. Yeah, but Cathy, uh, uh, in closing, I just want to say that, uh, and this was the gist of my presentation as well, that when we talk about the national healthcare system, we not looking purely, or we shouldn't just look at uh, the government being responsible for the public sector. Uh, it has been shown, and actually the WHO makes the point, that the private sector is an important part of the national health system. And how we see this in the industry is exactly what Mike from Newland say, where some of industry players say, Government must just focus on the public sector and leave the private sector alone. But if we did that, then government will never effectively address healthcare issues for everybody in the country. But the, the, the reverse also applies. When government comes up with solutions towards universal healthcare, it's just as important that government recognizes that private sector is a resource that it needs to tap into and uh, the I mean, if anything that has uh, shown this is actually COVID. And I'm, I'm encouraged. I've heard the DDG, Chris, from time to time referring to the fact that the lessons from COVID are going to be taken on board because the issue here is that this is what we say when the private sector must be part of it. COVID showed us where people who are indigent were admitted to private hospitals in ICU care if they needed it. So let's not go back from a model that basically recognizes both sectors as an important part. Thank you. Dr. Bengu, thank you so much for that. Christoph, you'll have the last word. Thank you. (coughs) Thank you, Kathy. You're putting me in a powerful position here. (laughs) Um, no, I, I, I was listening very carefully to the callers, and maybe the one overarching comment I would like to make is that all of them, in in different ways, highlighted how complex healthcare can be. Anonymous talked about uh, you know inefficiencies in, in, in procurement. Sibusisa talked about negligence and and how difficult it is for a for a patient to navigate that. Mike reflected on you know the tension between the public and private sector and the the pros and cons of, of, of both, you know, from, from his perspective. Um, but maybe I want to focus on, on Dr. Siva Pillay's comment, you know, just to reiterate that as a closing thought. Uh, 
I absolutely agree with him that the complexity of this system in the interplay between public and private is not fully appreciated or understood and we don't have effective leadership that that can implement that and also the comment that he made about the sequencing of reforms is right on the money um, is that it's very complex to sequence the reforms in the right manner he mentioned that NHR was never intended to be a silver bullet what I want to say is I think unfortunately many policyholders, uh, po policy makers in our country is viewing the NHR as a silver bullet, a, 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 an enormous uh, quick fix or a reboot of the system. And, and that mentality is making it very hard for us to, to, to make incremental changes in the interim. So we, we end up with a public and a private sector that are looking at each other, focusing on each other's flaws, and finding it difficult to, to work together with the exception of the COVID cases that Dr. Bengu mentioned, whereas I think the private sector can do so much tomorrow to assist and alleviate the public sector and vice versa, that unfortunately the silver bullet mentality makes it difficult for us uh, to achieve that. Thanks, Cathy. You've certainly all given us so much to think about further, and I think, uh, if anything, there's a lot more conversation we need to be having to really unearth what contributes to our healthcare system so that we as the general public are also better placed. I mean, what Anonymous said about the cost of um, importing medical devices, that's something that I hadn't even thought of. And yet there's, you know, seemingly so much money that um, we could be saving if we were to make some of those changes. So uh, an important public conversation to be having. And hopefully I'll be able to engage uh, all of you further in the future. Let me thank you for coming into studio. It's just after 1130. Dineo Modawung is standing by with your latest news headlines.